news media, the Wall Street Journal in this instance, Brett Arends, his job is to write an article that captures attention. Right. So they want to capture your attention. Right. And in times like what we've experienced in the last eight weeks where you have a lot more volatility in the stock market, it's a great time to catch, capture people's attention. For sure. And that's really when they can dip into that emotion of fear or greed. If the markets are going crazy and it just can't stop going up, Right. great time to write an article and get some people to read it. And yeah. That, that's their objective. So really they're there to sell advertising and get you to read Hold up. Hold up. Let me get my mind. Let me get my mind right. Yeah. Let me get my mind. Let me get my mind right. You know everything is all What's up everybody and welcome you know to another episode of Millennial Minds in Business where we sit down and we talk to young entrepreneurs who are changing the landscape of business as we know it. I'm your host Steven Gabrielson with SLG Advising business consulting of the new age and I am lucky enough to be sitting across the desk here from Sean West and Sean West over the past 11 years has built a successful financial advising practice here in Meridian, Idaho. At the age of 14, Sean received a gift of stock from his great uncle Merlin and he also got a personal finance book from his uncle Sam. These two gifts started his journey into financial advising. Sean started his financial advising practice in 2007 and has led clients through the ups and downs of the economic and market cycles over the last 11 years. Sean is a certified financial planner, or also known as a CFP, and serving over 180 clients across the country. He and his wife and four wonderful children, Sean likes to spend his free time serving in the community and enjoying the outdoors with his family. So Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Um, as we dive into stuff, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you got going on. Awesome. Well, thanks Steve for inviting me to do this with you. I'm really excited to be here. So appreciate this opportunity. It's fun having you. <laughs> and to also let everybody know, this is our first Instagram live that we have going on for the podcast, Ooh. as well as the first ever films. We got cameras all over the place. So this is fun. I'm excited. Yeah, this is the real deal. Yeah, we're going to have a very in-depth discussion about the stock market and, and and why it's so important to invest. So I'm excited. But before we jump into that, tell us a little bit about yourself. I uh, I love what I do. So, uh, it, you know, part, part of the, the story you shared with my, my two uncles who changed my, my world. Yeah. Uh, you know, it just... It started out at a young age. I come home from high school, look at the ticker tape, see which companies went up the most, which ones went down the most, and uh, just just learned to really love the stock market itself. Yeah. Uh, just it just fascinated me. And you know, from college, I was thinking about being an attorney. And the the good news is, I had an older brother who asked me, "What are you passionate about?" And that's when I figured out what I wanted yeah. to do. And I wanted to be an investor. I wanted to be an advisor. So the attorney so, didn't hold didn't hold up. The huh? attorney didn't hold up. No, no, I, I chose a, a different path. Well, good. Yeah. Seems like you chose the right path because you got some some pretty cool stuff going on. Yeah, it was the right path for me. Yeah. So I, so tell us about where you're at now, um, what business you're working with, and what you see happening in the next year or so. Okay, I am uh, currently with uh, Quarterly and Parkinson Wealth Management. We are an affiliate of LPL Financial, who is our broker-dealer, an independent firm. Cool. And uh, as you said in 
the introduction, I've got uh, several clients that I work with across the country. A lot of them are here in, in the Boise area. Um, but yeah, what I what I do is I, I do financial planning. So I, I look at clients' whole financial picture, try to understand not only what their goals are, more importantly, what their values are, you know, what they value in life. So that could be uh, their kids going on vacations, what they do at work, yeah. Um, understanding what their pa passions are and then helping them make decisions that lead lead to fulfilling those passions and those dreams. Awesome. Yeah. So you work with a variety of different people. Yeah. Across the country. Absolutely. Old, young, middle-aged. Yep. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Most of my clients are middle-aged and older. Okay. I've got a few clients that are my age and yeah. have kids my age, you know, and, cool. and that kind of thing. but. Uh, as it happened, that's just kind of who I ran into when I was building my business. For sure. Well, cool. A little bit older, yeah. Well, awesome. So, should we dive into the topic at hand? Sure. So, what we're going to be talking about today, um, and for those of you on Instagram Live, please feel free to reach out uh, with any questions that you may have as we go throughout the stuff. But, um, I was listening to the radio a couple weeks ago, and... Um, it was a local guy here in the valley, I think. I'm not really fully sure on where it came from or who it was talking. But um, it sounded like it was a guy that was that was trying to push a lot of uh, annuity-type investments, um, whole life insurance policy-type stuff. Um, and he, he told everybody that was listening to look up a an article that was written by the Wall Street Journal. And the article is titled, 10 Stock Market Myths That Just Won't Die. And so... I looked up the article and I figured you would be the best person to sit down and kind of dissect this article and go through each one of the myths um, and talk about them and not to say that some of these may not be true. There might be some in here that are true, but it's good to at least understand the context behind uh, what we're talking about and what each one of these myths are because there's just a very short blurb on each one. Um, so let's just, let's dive in. You ready? I'm ready. Yeah. All right. So myth number one is, or first off, back up, that, so the, the, the article kind of goes into it and it says, at times like this, your broker or financial advisor may offer words of wisdom or advice. There are standard calming phrases that you will hear over and over again. And so these phrases that we're going to go through are kind of the myths that he's talking about that just won't die. And so each one of these is a, a phrase that one would hear from their financial advisor or broker. And so the first phrase that we're going to be talking about is, this is a good time to invest in the stock market. And he also goes on to say in that paragraph that said, he says, or as someone once said, asking a broker if this is a good time to invest in the stock market is like asking your barber if you need a haircut. So <laughs> I'm going to pass there the ball you to you. What do you think? So first off, you know that word that word calming uh, you know that's a huge difference between a good a good advisor and a bad one a bad advisor uses fear to get you to buy things that otherwise aren't in your best interest so a good advisor is somebody who uses that that calming influence to help you stay in the game and make better long-term financial decisions because uh, when it comes to investing emotions really are the number one factor that determine your behavior. And if you can keep your emotions in check, you're going to have really, really good results. 
So back to this first uh, question, this is a good time to invest in the stock market. When you're accumulating assets, uh, in all reality, you kind of want the stock market to be really, really volatile because that's, that's why you get better returns in the stock market uh, versus other avenues out there because it is volatile and there's a lot of emotion in it. So you get paid a premium to invest there. So I, I guess the, the thing that I would say uh, in response to that, this is a good time to invest in the stock market. I think it certainly is, especially if uh, you're, a, you're a millennial. If we're talking to millennials here, it's a phenomenal time to invest. We've got 50 years ahead of us before we're dead. And uh, there's, there's going to be great opportunities that are going to come our way by investing in great companies of the future. For sure. And I know we're going to get into this more as we, as we talk and as we go throughout this article. But um, the stock market's kind of going crazy the past month. And it's put a lot of fear into people. Um, obviously, six months ago, it was raging and roaring and everybody was loving it. And now it's kind of seems like it's flipped and it's opposite. Um, it still has its ups and downs, but is there really is there really a good time to invest in the stock market? Yeah, any day that ends in Y. Any day that ends in Y. Yeah. So why is really any day a good day to invest in the stock market? Um, because it's 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 an investment vehicle for the long term. Yeah. So it, it it's it's not something you're going to use to take care of a, a car purchase you're going to make next year, or uh, you know you're you're going to try to pay off a debt that you have and you're going to try to do it faster by investing in the stock market. That's probably not a good idea. Yeah. But using it as a vehicle to to help you get from point A to point B to to a goal that might be uh, 15, 20, 30 years down the road. It's a great vehicle to use. For sure. Cool. Well, let's jump on to the next uh, phrase that people often hear. And it actually fits kind of perfectly with, I think, what we're talking about within the good times to invest. And it's stocks on average make you about 10% a year. And he also goes on to say that experts suggest 5% may be more typical. Um, and stocks only produce average returns if you buy them at average valuations. Okay. Those are, those are valid points, especially that last sentence. And, and stocks only produce average returns if you buy them at average valuations. Uh, what is an average return? And, and, and is that statement true that stocks on average make about 10% a year? Uh, to be brutally honest, the answer is yes. Uh, if I brought this little book. Uh, the Matrix book that, that, that has all this data in it. Uh, I'm just gonna, gonna give you some, some numbers from... We're nerding out here. We're nerding out. This, this is some numbers all the way back to 1926 on the S&P 500. So okay. what is that? That is a, a, an index of 500 of the biggest companies, the biggest companies in the United States. Okay. And it's their results for a long period of time. So what are the, what are the other major ones that we follow here in the, here in the U.S.? A lot of people refer part. to the stock market as the Dow Jones. And that's Which is, 30 big companies. Okay. So it's basically the 30 big market caps, biggest market caps within the U.S. Yes. Okay. And then we've got the NASDAQ. A lot of tech companies are inside of that. That's got thousands of companies. The difference between it and uh, the New York Stock Exchange is that it's a virtual stock exchange. It's it's done over the internet. Okay. So there's a there's a lot of companies that are trading on. We won't nerd into all that, yeah, yeah. that stuff. Yeah, but sure. the S&P 500... Uh, the, the, the Dow Jones are typically referred to as the market 
And okay. I think the S&P 500 is a better um, indicator of what actually happens here in the United States. It's 500 companies versus 30. Okay. So just to give you an idea, from 1926 uh, until now, or I guess the end of last year, the results of the S&P 500 was 10.2%. Um, just and that's over how many years? Sorry. That's over uh, 111 years. Okay. Yep. Excuse me. No, 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 no. I lied. 91 years. 91 years. Yep. You think well, I, I should be able to do math in my head. I can't. Yeah. I, yeah. Calculators, you know. It's, it's the cameras. <laughs> it's the cameras. So... <laughs> At any rate, back back to his his comment about uh, you know if if you buy it at average times you're you're gonna get you know average value you know at val- average valuations you're gonna get average results well the average re- results are ten so yeah. when when you look back to the, you know if you were to look at the bottom of this ch- chart uh, I'm just gonna go to 1960 just to get a little closer 10.1 percent was the average till now uh, 1970 10.5 1980, 11.8, 1990, 9.8, and then 2000 till now, 5.4. So that one's a little out of character. Mm-hmm. And then 2010 till now, 13.9. Okay. Uh, interestingly enough, this article that was written that this advisor must have said something about on, uh, on the radio. <laughs> that he referred to this actually was written in 2010. So if you had taken this advice or, or gotten scared out of the market because of fear during this time, yeah, uh, you know, 13.9% is what you missed out on. Yeah, and that's the crazy thing that I kept falling back on when I was reading this article was this guy that I was listening to two weeks ago referred me to an article that was written in 2010, over almost over eight years ago Yeah. Um, to today. And so it's just crazy. So much has happened since then. And I think a lot of what you were saying is this article is based on fear, still playing on those feelings from 2008 and 9, where everything kind of went to hell in a handbasket for those involved in the stock market. So, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yep. Yeah, I I, I didn't catch that until about uh, five in the morning when I was reading this this morning. I thought, (laughs) man, this is written. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Eight years ago. Isn't yeah. that crazy? Yep. Um, cool. That was Yeah, that was great. So our third phrase that you'll often hear from your broker or financial advisor is, our economists are forecasting blank. So, and he also goes on to say that the record for economic forecast is not impressive, which I think everybody knows. Um, not Maybe not everybody, but... Um, and then it even says that even into 2008, many economists were still still denying that a recession was on the way. So let's dive into that one. How do you <clears throat> how do you handle forecasting when when it comes to the stock market? Um, I don't. Yeah. Do you even do you even believe in accurate forecasting when it comes to the stock market? I don't. I don't believe in that. You know, there's two schools of thoughts when it comes to investing. There's uh, fundamental investors which look at a lot of data and they decide on uh, which which companies to buy because of certain uh, information in, in their in their statistics and their financials and then you've got technical investors that look at charts so they they would disagree with me on this on, on forecasting but technical investors believe that they can forecast or they can they can kind of see into the future of what what's going to happen with this uh, particular investment 
I fall into the, the latter category of, of fundamental investing. I believe in long-term stuff. So what I do is boring, and I don't really believe in, in, in forecasting. I don't believe it works. Yeah. You don't <clears throat> so I, I agree with him on this, on this point. Yeah. That economic forecasting is kind of for the birds, man. Yeah. No one, no one knows what's going to happen in the stock market tomorrow. Not even if you're an owner of one of the top 30 Dow Jones companies. Absolutely. No one knows. No, no one, one knows. knows. Right. So I think we can say that one is relatively <clears throat> accurate and relatively true, right? Agree. I'm just going to mark this so that we can recap what we think Yeah. at the end here. So let's see. Jumping into our fourth phrase is investing in the stock market lets you participate in the growth of the economy. Awesome. So I changed the last word in that, in that sentence to instead of economy, company. So investing in the stock market lets you participate in the growth of the company. Okay. And that's really the truth. You know, when it comes to an economy, uh, you know, in his paragraph, he references uh, Japan. And he references, you know, the tough times they've gone through since the late 1980s. And it's true. They have. They've struggled. Uh, if you invest in a company that's either in Japan or in the United States, you're going to get the results of that company. Yeah. So... Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily latch on to that, that, that statement of investing in the stock market lets yeah. you participate in the growth of the economy. I don't, I don't think the growth of the economy uh, really determines what reflected. your investments do. Yeah. And another thing that I think a lot of people miss is the direct um, performance of a company doesn't necessarily reflect the stock price. For example, every quarter... Um, or every year, these companies will come out to the street or Wall Street and give um, a, a forecast of what they think is going to happen over the next quarter and so on and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that stock price is based off those forecasts and how close they get to hitting those forecasts, right? Right. Um, and so you can have a company that forecasts to make $500 billion this quarter, and if they only make $300 billion, they still make a lot of money, but they were way off on their on their uh, forecasts, right. and that can actually hurt their stock price. Right. Right. So even if these companies are growing and doing a lot, and the economy is growing with them, stock prices can be hurt from botched forecasts, basically. Right. Right. Missing their expectations. Yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> are we gonna say that one's true? Uh, in a way, we're gonna say it's true in a way that. You know, if you invest in the stock market, you're going to participate in the growth of the companies in which you invest. Okay. I like that. I like that saying. That was well put. Very well put, Sean. All right. So let's jump into our fifth phrase that you'll hear from your broker. And that phrase is, if you want to earn higher returns, you have to take more risk. Love it. Love it. Higher risk, higher returns. Love it. Couldn't have been uh, stated any clearer. You know, the, the word <laughs> risk, the word risk is just abused uh, in our industry. And it's it's abused outside of our industry. When, when people look at um, the stock market or they look at the bond market, the real estate market, whatever, uh, whatever it is, uh, there's a risk. Yeah. I mean, there's a risk if you step walking, outside your yeah, door every day. Walking down the sidewalk, right? there's risk. So the, the real question is, is how do you define risk? And really, 
if you're defining risk as the volatility of the stock market and how that's going to hurt you, uh, you're probably looking at it the wrong way. Yeah. Okay. I look at. I, I think that's a risk, but I think that the, the bigger risk for most people is the fact that uh, back in 1980, the price of a stamp to send something in the mail it was 15 cents. Wow. So the Miracle on Ice. You could have bought one of those. Like, I wish I wish I had the internet to show you, uh -huh. but the, the the postage stamp back then, the coolest one was yeah. this hockey guy. That, that was the Miracle on Ice. That was the year that uh, the, the United States young guys beat the Soviets in the, yeah, in the yeah. World Cup, right? So uh, at any rate, that stamp cost you 15 cents. Well, fast forward to 2010 when this article was written, 45 cents to send something in the mail. Yep. Today, what is it? It's still around 49, isn't it? 49 49.50. And I just heard a client tell me yesterday, she said, I just heard that the price is going to 55 cents. Woo! See, the funny thing is, is most of our listeners, millennials, no, none of us know what the price of a post stamp is because none of us send snail mail anymore. <laughs> that's true. That's the craziest thing. That's we just true. Go, if we have to send something that's big enough, we go to the UPS store, put it in a box, and ship it. We don't even care what the shipping rate is. Right. But I like where you're going with this, so keep going. Yeah, so I guess I'm using the wrong example for millennials. <laughs> but at any rate, 30 years from now or 25 years from now, instead of being 55 cents to send something in the mail, it's going to be a buck 50, buck 60. And that's just the reality of the risk we face. Yep. Anybody faces that risk. And that risk to me is 20 times greater than the risk of the stock market dropping by 2,000 points tomorrow. Yeah. And I, 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 oh my gosh, I also think another big Speaking thing. Speaking of the Dow. Yeah. I also think another big thing that this doesn't really touch on is long-term versus short-term and that play on the word risk right short if you're if you're if your play is short-term in the stock market your risk is a lot higher because of the volatility within the stock market because it's naturally volatile mm -hmm. but those long-term plays like we talked about earlier with the average of the 10 percent growth you're not really there's not much risk there because it's we have the data that shows 10 percent growth on average, year over year, right. So, so taking that a step further, we we can talk about uh, di different assets and asset classes. So there's okay. a higher level of volatility or risk. You could use that word. Yeah. To invest in in smaller or medium sized companies versus large ones. Over the long run, those small and medium sized companies will have better results than large companies over the long run. Yeah. So you could say in the short run, there's more risk to them, but in the long run, there's less risk to them because they yeah. earn more money, Yep. right? So I think your point of looking at the short term versus the long term, long term is the key to understanding that word of risk. Yeah. And when it comes down to it, there's really two types of safety. There is, and when we're talking about financial stuff, <laughs> there's statement safety and then there's spending safety. Statement safety is provided by things like CDs and savings accounts and treasury bonds. Which generally hold a lot less growth. Correct. So there, you know, on, on those types of investments right now, you're going to get 2 to 3% on your money, which mm -hmm. is fantastic. Two years ago, guess what you'd have gotten? Uh, yeah. Like, Nada. Yeah. 
Zero zip. Okay? Yeah. So talk about risk. If you had all of your money and you were retired and you had it invested in CDs and treasury bonds and you went from 2007 when you could have gotten 5% on your money to 2016, 15, 14, 13, 11 and you'd have gotten zero on your money, that's a lot of risk. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, Especially with the growth that was taking place in the stock market during that time. Correct. So the, the, the thing that they do provide to you, however, is statement safety. Okay, when you get your statement, you look at it, it was like, oh, that was 100,000 bucks last month. It's 100,000 bucks this month. I have my statement saved. Yeah. But really what, what stocks provide to you and even real estate, things that are ownership investments, they provide long-term stability, long-term safety. And that's, that's why we own them. Okay, cool. That leads us to number six. So number the six. sixth phrase that is a myth that will not die of something you would hear from your broker or financial advisor is the market's really cheap right now. The PEE ratio is only about 13. So back in 2010, I would say that that phrase was spot on. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, you know, that that's that's when the markets were really cheap. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's when the price earnings ratio was, I, I mean, I don't have the data right in front of me, but it was probably close to that number. Yeah. Uh, today, I wouldn't say that to somebody. Okay. Okay, I, would, I wouldn't. And that's because of the enormous amount of growth we've seen over the past two years. Yeah, because the, the prices of companies compared to what they're earning right now is, is different than that. It's yeah. higher. It's in the 20s. Um, so if, what is, if you look at the Schiller PE, it's in the high 20s, 29. Yeah. We won't get into that. But that's, so I, I will say that uh, I would not say that right now. Okay. So talk to us a little bit about the mechanics of the PE ratio. So what is a high ratio? What's a low ratio? What is a good time to sit back and think this is a good this is a good price to earnings ratio? Well, if you read an article and it says price to earnings ratio about thirteen, back up the truck. <laughs> okay, load up because yeah. that's 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 a really good valuation. Okay, uh, back in two thousand and nine, you know the, the valuations were in the the high single digits, like eight and nine percent, or not. Uh, uh, price of a company compared to what it earns. So uh -huh. what, what that ratio is, is it, it looks at what a company's stock price is at. Let's just say it's at $300 and it's and it's making $3 a year in earnings. It's it's priced at 100 times earnings. That's really, really high. Yeah. And a company that's a high growth company, like Amazon, for example, would be would have would have a valuation like that and it doesn't mean that it's overpriced yeah it's just priced that high because it's growing really 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 fast and people love the stock right so you, you can't compare uh, an Amazon to a uh, Republic services or waste management that picks up your trash yeah okay they're entirely separate companies and they're gonna have entirely separate price to earnings ratios yeah. so typically the lower that ratio the cheaper something is. Yeah. Um, but y y I guess you can't blanket all investments out there and say, oh, everything's at a 13, it's good. Yeah. You have to look at things uh, on, on an individual, individual basis. basis. And does that kind of vary even between like industries? So like a tech industry versus yes. more utility? Yeah, tech okay. industries are typically gonna have higher PE ratios versus uh, utilities are going to have lower PE ratios. Okay, so it's not necessarily looking into a PE ratio and saying, "Oh, 13, I need to go buy that." 
Correct. It's more of looking at the entire industry, see what the industry is trending at uh, versus those ratios and then making a determination if it's a good investment or not. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, we didn't even mark it. We got to go back to our fifth one about risk. Did we say that one was true or not? We said it was maybe It's true. a completely retarded saying. <laughs> yeah. Right? So it's it, basically a play on the word risk. Yeah. It, 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 we, we could write that same thing about uh, investing in CDs or yeah. if, if you invest your money with a guy who was using fear on the radio and yeah. you buy an annuity that's a fixed annuity at 5%, yeah. you have quote unquote zero risk. But no, in all reality, you've got a ton of risk. Yeah. Okay. So it all depends on how you define risk. Okay. So I would say that that statement is a bunch of baloney and it's yeah. false. Okay. All right. So the PE ratio about 13. The statement itself, the market's really cheap, P.E. ratio about 13, is actually a true statement. That is a cheap P.E. ratio. Yeah. But it's you got to take it You got to take it into context, right? Right. Right. All right. So our next phrase is, you can't time the market. And he goes on later to say, if you invest in shares when they're cheap compared to cash flows and assets, typically this happens when everybody is gloomy and down on the market. And you'll usually do very well versus the opposite when you invest when shares are very expensive, such as when everybody else is absurdly bullish, meaning they're going after the stock market, you will probably do badly. So I think I think from his two statements there, I think he's on. Okay, okay. so if, if everybody in the world's fearing uh, that, you know, that like in the last eight weeks, we've had a correction, things have gone down by 10% or more, right? That is, in, in the eyes of Warren Buffett, it's a great time to go buy, you know, pull out the shopping cart and go buy something. Yeah. Um, and, and, and when everybody's cheering and, and, and things are up, the highest they've ever been, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that's the time to sell it. But if, if you're a retiree and you've got to prepare for the next year's worth of income, it's not a bad time to, you know, take some of your gains and throw them into your cash buckets that you use to provide you your retirement income. Yeah. Cool. So basically, this also kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier as well. As, I mean, you can't time the market is basically the same thing as saying, this is a good time to invest in the stock market because they go kind of hand in hand, right? So yeah, I like what you were saying with that. And, and, and if you're a millennial, you don't need to time the market. Yeah, you okay? just got basically you got to. And you can't. Let me tell you that I I agree with those words. You can't time the market, but what you can do is you can accumulate and you can you can buy into the market on an average basis every single month when you put money into your account. That's the that's the best way to invest. Yeah, just and, and that way you you take advantage of the volatility that the market offers you. And the volatility is your friend. It's not your enemy. Volatility helps you. You know, that's that's how you get really good results long term is because it is volatile. Yeah. And so that is also it sounds like it could be a play on the short term versus the long term investing investing as well. Mm -hmm. Right? If if you're trying to time the market, generally means you're going more of a short term investment to pull it out once it grows and you're playing that volatility, which I would say ninety eight percent of the time you're probably gonna get bit pretty hard. Yeah, you're gonna get burned. Over the over the history we've seen how poor people are at doing that. Um but the long term, if you're seeing 10% growth uh, year over year on average in the S&P, then 
what when does it matter when you jump in because it's it's going to grow that 10 percent year over year on average so yeah love it and love the key words there is on average on you know average. there's gonna be some years where you get 30 and some years where you get negative 10 and then yep. some years where you get two and eight and you know yep. every number under uh 50 is gonna get used <laughs> yeah and maybe 50 sometimes will get used but yeah. that's uh you know that's pretty pretty normal to see that for sure for sure all right, so that dump jumps us into our next one. Our next phrase is we recommend a diversified portfolio of mutual funds. That is a quote-unquote myth, according to this article, that you will hear from your broker or financial advisor. Um, he goes on to say um, that uh, a lot of brokers when within, within the term a diversified portfolio means that investing in mutual funds with different names and styles like large cap value or small cap growth, mid cap blend, um, international small cap value, and yada, yada, yada. Um, that they are marketing gimmicks. Yeah. So that tells you right there uh, that, that his understanding of the different asset classes is very minimal. Really? So the writer of the article, uh, Brett Arends, doesn't really understand the difference between small cap value and small cap blend and small cap growth. He, he has no idea what, what those mean. Yeah. Okay, but they are different. Yeah. And and, and those are different than uh, large cap growth and then international value. They're, all those things are different. So if you have a mutual fund that says those different things behind them, they are different. Yeah. Okay, it's not a marketing gimmick. What are some different. The, what are some of the differences between the two of them or between the, the variety of them? So, for example, in the small cap universe in the United States, there's 2,000 companies that's in the Russell 2000 index, okay? And those are all smaller companies versus the 500 big guys that are in the S&P 500, uh-huh. okay? So what is the difference between all of them? Well, they're just smaller companies that are uh, up, and, up and coming companies that eventually some of those are going to break through to the next level and the next level after that and become very large companies. Yeah. Apple's a company that started out of a garage. At some point in the past, it was a small company. Now it's what a did, monster. Apple opened up. It was what was its price when it first came out? Wasn't it like fifty something cents? Does it was it that low or was it a couple bucks? I don't know. And now it's I should know that, but I don't know that. Its high was what, two hundred and fifteen, two hundred and twenty bucks? Yeah, and that's after it split. So it just split yeah. a few years ago. Yeah. And then yeah, it just it just got up into the two 20s, maybe in 2.30 a few weeks ago. Jeez, crazy. So um, back, back to what he wrote here, though. He, said, he says this, if your broker means you should diversify across things like cash, bonds, stocks, alternative strategies, commodities, and precious metals, then that's good advice. <laughs> so back to his unintelligence of, of, of writing this article, um, <laughs> Really, when you think about cash long term, it's not going to make you hardly any money at all. Yeah. Uh, and then precious metals, they can be a, a hedge uh, and try to protect on the downside perhaps if you're, if you're buying gold. But when you look at the long term history of metals and, and, and what they, they do for you as an investor, very bad long term investment. So metals are a trade. They're not an investment. So the fact that he says, you know, if your broker's telling you to buy that, this, this, and you're, you're mixing things up, it's like, well, he's telling you to buy stuff that's not going to do good long term. Yeah. You know, if, if he's telling you to buy that for a trade <clears throat> or to hedge against the downside, perhaps, then he might be giving you some great advice. But if he's telling you to buy metals for the long run, 
He's not giving you good advice. Yeah. So is there certain situations where a, diver- a diversified portfolio among bonds and, and precious metals and stuff like that is a good idea? Generally, I, I what comes to mind for me, for in, at least in my mind, is maybe someone who were to walk into your office who's in their 50s or 60s and has a lump sum of cash that they need to invest. Is there is there a better strategy um, out there than just doing stock market stuff? Depends. Depends. Depends on, on how long you're you're talking and, and what kind of uh, valuations things are at in, in the markets where do you if there's a lot of fear out there, there's a lot of greed, you know, it just depends on on uh, this situation. Yeah. But if if, if they are if, if their risk tolerance tells you you're sitting across the table from them and they're like, Well, all we've ever had is CDs. I don't think it's you know in my in my experience you want to break them in slowly. So yeah, so going from like a CD investment <clears throat> or something that's very steady, yeah, very safe. They've had statement safety their entire investment career. You don't want to take that and dump it all 100% of the stock market. Yeah, you want to prepare them for this is this is how this works and here's here's the results and, and you want to educate them on how everything works. Um, and and it, talk about volatility, gold. That's one of the most volatile assets out there. Yeah, for so sure. that's a uh, yeah that that goes without saying. So I, sure. I think that the key there is just to understand yourself, understand, make sure your advisor understands you, and then you'll have the right mix of, of assets. Definitely. So jumping into our next um, piece of or our next phrase that you would often hear from your broker or financial advisor that may be a myth is. This stock, or this is a stock picker's market. So first off, walk us through what the heck a stock picker's market is. <laughs> and yeah, let's let's dive into this one. Okay. So uh, a stock picker's market. It's kind of like, when, when you hear the phrase, this is a, in real estate, this is a buyer's market, or this is a seller's market. Um, when they say that in real estate, it just means that there's either an oversupply of homes or a lower supply of homes. It just it just means it's a good time for one or the other. Right. People say that in in the the stock world. Uh, what that means is that active managers, people who go out and they selectively pick out sixty companies to invest your money in, they have a good market, right? Or yeah. that it's it's way more difficult. So. At the bottom of the market in 2009, you could throw a dart and hit a bullseye almost every time. Yeah. Okay? Just pick XYZ company, <laughs> put your money in it. It's going to go up. Everything was down. Everything was down. Yep. So so that's that's not a stock picker's market. Okay? In today's environment, when uh, everything's come up to the... You know the highest levels ever. We got uh, higher multiples or valuations. It is. It's more of a what we would call a stock pickers market. Okay, it's supposedly an opportunity for active managers to do better. Yeah. Okay. So, is there any validity in that in that phrase? Or is there? That's the that's the great debate. Yeah. So the great debate in, in our industry right now is whether or not active managers actually add value. 
So, so walk us through what an active manager is. So an active manager uh, is a manager over in New York, Boston, San Francisco. He's got, he excuse me, she's got uh, 10, 10 to 50 analysts working for us. So, you know, analysts that are going out and, and, and they're researching companies and they're bringing her back ideas. And she is deciding to take Joe's advice and Sam's advice and uh, Esmeralda's advice. Okay, and, and those are the those are the companies that she chooses to buy. That's an active manager. What is a what's what's a passive manager? Passive manager says there's 500 companies in that index, we buy all 500. Or there's 2,000 companies in that index, or 1,000 companies, we buy all of them. So passive managers have lower costs because they're just an index. They're just they're just buying what what's out there, and there's no there, there's not a lot of people working to produce that result yeah so the more people you have working to produce a particular result the higher the costs of your mutual fund are going to be so yeah. that's an important thing to to consider will they with with all the things that they're doing to try to make you more money in your investment will they make that extra money because of the things that they're doing okay so I am on the school of thought that the answer to that is most of the time, no. Okay. Okay. I think, I in some instances, uh, particularly with with bond managers, I think they add value, and uh, growth managers, I think, add value. That okay. those are the two I'll single out in my own opinion. Yeah. But I think active active managers and the value space and that kind of stuff, I don't think they add value. And does that kind of go back to where was it? You can't time the market. In a sense, yeah. In a sense. Well, well, you can. So, so active managers, they can have a great run. Uh -huh. So I, I've seen it uh, where they will do really well for 10 years, maybe 15 years, and then everything blows up. Yeah. Okay, so it's very hard for them to repeat their success. Okay. So when it comes down to it, if you're a, a mutual fund manager or an advisor and you're picking mutual funds for your clients, what we're trained to do is look at Morningstar and see which mutual fund has five stars. Five stars means they've kicked butt for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> and they're five-star funds. So yeah. you're trained to put all of your clients' money in the five-star funds. The problem with that strategy is that that's all, all that history, all those five stars came from past performance. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they're going to do it again. Yeah. Um, that being said, there's some managers that still pull it off, but the percentages are low. Yeah. So I could give you those percentages in a minute if you if you really want them. If you guys are yeah. dying to have they're those, they're low. We're talking like less than ten percent, right? Um, Is it lower than that? No, I think it's higher than. That. I think it's okay. like uh, I'd have to see the numbers, but I think it's like fifteen percent if I remember. Okay, but even then, like fifteen percent of the the ones that did really well repeat themselves. Yeah, that's a really low. That's low number. Like out of all the actively managed funds that are out there. I think it's the numbers are like 50 to 60% of them get closed up, meaning the, the mutual fund actually shuts down within 10 years. Wow. Because they just don't produce. They don't, yeah. do, they don't do what they're set out to do. Wow. And so out of the survivors of all that, there's only a few that are the winners, and then there's only a few that repeat themselves. Very few yeah. that repeat yeah. themselves. So, so you're talking a handful of mutual funds that are actually going to be successful past year 15, 20 
yeah. 25. And there's a few that, that, that I believe in, right? I, yeah. I'm, I'm, but most of the, the things that I do, it's all passive. Yeah. Okay. So that, that kind of squashes that one. Are we, do you have anything else you want to say about the stockbroker's market? Uh, no, that's good. Um, it's just funny. It's funny that that's one of the myths he put in there. It's yeah. Like, what, what's the myth about that? That's just a statement. You know? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the final uh, phrase that could be a myth that you would hear from your broker or financial advisor is stocks outperform over the long run. And so he goes on to say, define the long term. If you can be down for 10 years, for 10 or more years, exactly how much help is that? As John Maynard Keynes, Keynes, yeah. Keynes, the economist once said, "In the long run, we are all dead." Yeah, I love Brett's last point because that one, uh, it, it, he just, you know, the stocks outperform in the long run. It's so true. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and uh, so, so, I, I don't, I don't know how that's a myth. So the definition of a myth is a belief in something that's false, uh-huh. and. Uh, I think it's a true statement. So, what, yeah. what, what do we say to that? I mean, well, we go back. To the there, there I mean, are a couple periods where you had negative returns over ten years. Yep. Um, but very few. I think there's. I'd have to go make sure, but I think it's around two. Yeah, and so that's crazy to think. The two of the past, uh, of all the historical data that we have, the stock market is really a play on statistics when you when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of it. Um, and like we've been talking about, that long-term run is so important because year, the long-term average, year over year, we see 10%. And so, I mean, this whole phrase, stock markets outperform over the long run, and how he's saying that's somehow a myth is just kind of blows my mind because all the information out there is completely contrary to that. Um, so that just, that kind of blows my mind. Yeah. So I would ask I would ask the baby boomers, you're retired now. How long do you do you plan on living? Yeah. And most of them are gonna say, oh, twenty to thirty years. Yeah. Well, that to me, that's long term. Yeah. And if you are invested in long term assets over that time frame, you're gonna win. Yeah. Uh versus the the millennials, I ask you the same question. How long until you retire? They're going to say, what? 40 years, 30 years. 30, 40 years. You, know you have some aggressive ones that say 10, <laughs> maybe 5. Yeah, yeah I'm going to retire in 5 I'm going to sell my app company. And then, and then the, million. The, the question behind that is, how long do you plan on living after that? <laughs> yeah. And then they can't hide from it because it, yeah. it, the answer to that question is, oh, well, I retire in 5 years, so I'm going to live another 40 to 50 years. Yeah. And if, if doctors keep getting better and better, which they're awesome... Uh, we might live into our 120s. Who yeah. knows? That'd be cool. Yeah. I'm okay with that. So that lo- that's long term to me. That's yeah. long term. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> reading through, that kind of summarizes all the phrases that were that were in this article. And I mean, going back and looking through them, this kind of cements my belief in the stock market and how, how important it is. For young people and young individuals to take advantage of investing into the stock market, um, and it doesn't—it doesn't take much. You don't have to be—you don't have to have a hundred thousand dollars in order to invest in the stock market. You don't. 
No, you can start with 50 bucks. People start like that all the time. Yeah. And the I mean, earlier you start, the better. the better. And that comes down to compounding interest. Mm -hmm. um, for those of you who don't know who compounding interest is or what, uh, or what compounding interest is, um, it's just the, gr the growth year over year of, of something and with interest involved. So if you have $10,000, it grows to 10%. The next year you have $11,000, the next year you have, what is that, $12,100, $200, and so on and so forth. Um, and so it's growth on top of growth on top of growth. And so obviously the longer you can have something in an investment that has a return, the more better off you're going to be in the long run. Um, so I think our, our, our closing um, argument really is this article seems like it was a lot more written for someone who is um, aggressive, short-term in the market, um, whereas they're not, they don't have necessarily a long-term focus. At least from this is what, that's what I gather from reading this article. I think really when you look at CNBC uh, on the TV and you read the Wall Street Journal, they aren't, they aren't written for long-term investors. They're, okay. they're written for short-term investors. Yeah, because all all the information is it's day to day, second by second. You know, here, here's the latest on this, 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 and this. But in all reality, doesn't it impact a long term investor. Long term investors aren't impacted by what happens in the news. The news media, the Wall Street Journal, in this instance, Brett Arends, his job is to write an article that captures attention. Right. So they want to capture your attention. Right. And in times like what we've experienced in the last eight weeks where you have a lot more volatility in the stock market, it's a great time to catch, capture people's attention. For sure. And that's really when they can dip into that emotion of fear or greed. If the markets are going crazy and it just can't stop going up, Right. great time to write an article and get some people to read it. And yeah. That, that's their objective. So really they're there to sell advertising and get you to read the article. And the more people that read their article, the more money they get paid, the happier Wall Street Journal is. Right. Uh, that, that's the way it all works. Right. So, And it also comes back to when I was listening to the radio a couple weeks ago, there was a very distinct reason why the man I was listening to um, was trying to persuade people out of the stock market. And that was to push him into annuities and other types of investments for him to also make money on the back end. Um, right. And so it's always good to do your research when it comes to anything within the financial industry, um, especially your investments, um, research both sides. Um, and don't let someone point you to an article and you go read the article and don't take it all at face value. Make sure you do your research. Make sure you look into it um, and make sure that you are, are very comfortable with what you are about to do with your, um, with your, with your financial plan and your, your financial future. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, like I always say, my personal favorite is the best time to plan for retirement was yesterday. And to start planning for retirement was yesterday. So if you're not investing, if you're not planning for retirement, I highly suggest you start doing, start planning for retirement. Get out there, start looking for vehicles to put your money in um, to help you grow over the long run. And call this man that's sitting across the table from me, Sean West, um, who is by far the best financial advisor. Um, and certified financial planner that I have spoke with on these subjects. 
um, and really is is one of a very small handful that I really trust um, for for long term and taking care of, of people's financial situations. So, with that, where can people find you, Sean? Uh, they can find me on on the internet on LinkedIn yeah. or at, at our website cpwealthmanagement.com. Okay. Um, they can also call me two zero eight. Seven nine five five one two three, and I'll post all your information in the bio as well. Yeah. Um, so real quick, just back yeah. to one of the first things I said. If you hire me or don't hire me, my advice is to find someone that is a calming influence to you when it comes to investing. Don't don't seek after those that use fear to to capture your attention and to sell you a product because they're not good advisors. And good. products include, uh, when we say products, we mean annuities and, and what else do we mean? It, it could be hedge products? funds. It could be any anything that's going to uh, protect you on the downside. Or, uh, you know, it, it's another way of saying that we're going to help you make less money over the long run or we're going to help you not reach your financial goals because you're, you're using us, right? Right. Uh, the, the, the good financial advisors will help you find the, the right vehicles for you to reach your goals, um, but they'll also be a calming influence to you as, you as you invest over the years because it's not easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it and everybody would be like Warren Buffett. Right. right? But it's, it's easier for him because he has an understanding of market cycles and, and how financial markets work. And so... It's, it's a no-brainer for him to do the opposite of what most people do. But he does it because he's calm and he understands investing. And you need to find an advisor who's calm and understands investing, and then you'll have great results. And that's why they need to call you. There you go. For sure. Well, hey, Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Yeah, thanks for um, having me. This was a value-packed uh, podcast. So go back, watch the uh, Instagram Live that we did if you haven't been following along this is also filmed will be posted on youtube um, as well as linkedin and other uh, uh, social media pages uh, so it's super important to learn this stuff Hold up. until Hold next time let me get my mind let me get my mind right yeah let me get my mind let me get my mind right you know everything is all right you know everything is all right